Welcome to the weekly Investor Insights podcast. This is Gavin Ralston, and I'm joined today by Remy Olapitan from Multi-Asset, and we'll be focusing on the thinking and the conclusions from last week's Global Asset Allocation Committee. As has been the case for some weeks now, we're talking about economies and markets against a background of solid performance by risky assets, uh, in complete contrast to the final quarter of 2018. In fact, the, the last week was the sixth consecutive week of positive returns on global equity markets. And for the year as a whole, we're now looking at a return on the global equity index of about 23%, so pretty exceptional performance. The catalyst behind all this, particularly recently, has been the expectation that phase one of a trade deal between the US and China will be signed before the end of December. Bonds have given up some of their recent gains, although yields are still about 30 basis points up from the lows of September. Uh, they've tended to drift, yields have tended to drift up a bit in the last couple of weeks. But in fact, if we look at market moves collectively, it's apparent there's been a marked shift in the perception of growth next year. This is reflected in the shape of the US yield curve, which has returned to normality, the better performance of cyclical stocks in the US and of financials in Europe, strength in some commodity prices and in many emerging markets currencies. But we should bear in mind this is all against the background where the, the data being reported now is still pretty weak. In fact, in the last few days, there have been signals of weak growth in China and Singapore and forecasts for the current quarter GDP in the US are still being scaled back. So Remy, talk to us about the deliberations at last week's GAC meeting in particular, do you expect this benign environment to continue? So the deliberations were really focused on the fact that we've had strong markets that have been driven by the easing in liquidity provided by central banks cutting rates globally. And this has led to an asset price reflation. But what we are still lacking is an economic reflation. And so while this asset price reflation can continue because there is plenty of liquidity in the system, um, there is at some point we do need the economic reflation to come through. We're not seeing any evidence of that just yet. As you mentioned, the data is still weak across many parts of the globe. Um, we believe that the sentiment and positioning is still supportive for risk assets as we go into the end of the year. And in 2020, particularly the early parts of 2020, we need to face the reality check of what the data is actually doing. But that means that you're still comfortable being positioned reasonably positively in risk assets for the balance of this year, given the liquidity background. Yes. And the big risk to that position would be a deterioration in the outlook for some sort of trade resolution? Yes, a material de deterioration in the outlook for trade. However, I, I mean, I, uh, trade to some extent has been a major headwind for um, global activity data. But the story for this year is really central bank liquidity, unless there is any change in terms of what central banks are trying to do, particularly any change in communication from the Fed. We believe that that pattern will be maintained this year. On trade, we do expect the phase one deal to be signed and agreed over the next couple of weeks. Um, and that's okay for sentiment. We don't believe the phase one deal will necessarily lift the data. It's more or less 
okay in terms of sentiment. Mm. And I think Keith is on the point of revising up his growth expectations for the US for next year, partly on the basis that the, the trade obstacle to growth has, has, has at least partly been removed. Yes, so the, the, the downside risks um, are certainly fading. Um, a couple of months ago, the probability of a US recession was materially higher. We do believe that a lot of the um, liquidity that's coming through the cuts from the Fed will start to feed into the US domestic data and removing that headwind from trade or the prospects of even more tariffs coming through is helpful. So for a portfolio that has a mandate to beat a benchmark with a given equity weight, are you overweight in equities? Yes, today? we're overweight in equities. Um, we're overweight in the areas that we expect to benefit from um, the liquidity environment. We're also overweight. Um, we also have a preference for the areas that have um, where investors have avoided because they are exposed to the cycle. So in particular, we've added to non-US equities. We like emerging market equities. We also like um, equities in areas like Europe in Japan. So uh, the, most of this year you've had a reasonably positive view of US equities. It sounds like that shifting uh, leadership will change to the rest of the world. Yes, and that's purely driven by the fact that valuations outside of the US are more attractive at the moment. So if we continue to be in this environment of excess liquidity, okay to stable growth, then we should we expect greater upside in um a greater upside potential um, for returns outside of the US. We, we still seem to be in a sweet spot where rising bond yields are good for equities because it suggests greater optimism about growth. But there must come a point where the level of bond yield starts to undermine equity valuations. How, how close are we to that point in your view? Yeah, so for us, it's the real yield. So if we look at the U.S. Um, market, um, the real yield on um, the U.S. 10-year is quite important. At the moment, it's still very low, so we're around the zero. Um, as we move up towards 0 0.5, which has been the average over the last five years, that's quite a critical level. Um, so at the moment, the rise in bond yields we've seen over the last couple of weeks have been driven by higher inflation expectations, which suggests that the market is assuming that growth will recover. So in that environment, you can have the combination of higher bond yields and higher equity markets. Um, what, so what we're watching is the real yield. That will naturally start to rise, but the level above 0 0.5, which is still quite far away, is where we'll start to think, reconsider equity valuations. So let's unpack the comment you made about where you're finding attractive areas within risky assets. So first of all, emerging markets, which have been up this year, but significantly less, done significantly less well than developed markets equities. But you're looking at a better year in 2020. Yes, yeah, so um, emerging market equities have been held back by the trade situation and also the weakness in growth. The market is very sensitive to ac global activity data and we've had a stubbornly strong US dollar. We think that things are changing at the margin. Um, we expect growth to improve or to at least stabilize, which removes one of the headwinds. Um, liquidity is plentiful, which is good for EM. And on the dollar, having been stubbornly strong, we think that the dollar from now on should start to weaken. We'll come back to the dollar in a moment. The other area you highlighted where you've made a slight shift is towards Europe. 
but the, the growth data in Europe still seems particularly weak. There's no prospect of fiscal easing by Germany, uh, and the ECB has limited easing. Uh, so what's going on in, in your thinking in Europe? So the European, so interestingly, the growth data is quite weak in Europe, but a lot of that is due to um, the situation outside of Europe. So it's really the manufacturing data that's exceptionally weak. Domestic European data is holding up well, not exciting, but it's okay. Um, so the areas we like in Europe are the manufacturing sectors, because we think that a lot of that pessimism is reflected in starting um, pricing and starting valuation. So any form of optimism on the manufacturing side should generate very attractive returns. And um, talk to us a bit more about um, other areas of risky assets because you've had quite a strong position in carry currencies over the last few months, uh, high yielding emerging markets currencies among them. Is that still part of the portfolio? Yes, we still feel that there's more to go. So for most of this year, we favoured those high yielding um, currencies in the EM universe, but we favoured them relative to the euro. Um, so as we move to the new year, we're switching from favouring the high yielders and we're looking at whether um, we should own them relative to the US dollar. So owning the high yielders relative to European currencies has worked very well for us, despite the stubbornly strong dollar. Um, the other um, you know, position we've had for most of this year is to favour um, high yielding credit so particularly U.S. high yield, a position that's also worked quite well. These are all been part of the liquidity trade. So we favoured carry because it's been the best way to express the actions of central banks. As we move into the new year, we're going to give growth the benefit of the doubt. We have been by rotating more into the cyclical areas such as equities. And any particular currencies you want to highlight where you've got a positive view? Um, it's still the EM complex. Um, so in terms of the high yielding EMs, it's the likes of Brazilian, Brazilian real, the Russian ruble, Indian rupee. So it is still the high yielding EM complex. And you, you mentioned a moment ago uh, a view that the dollar might weaken from here. And the dollar's obviously been pretty strong for most of 2019. So what's what's going to drive weakness in the dollar from now on? Um, the critical thing is really the view that growth outside of the US can recover. Um, so for the last three years, we've had a situation where US growth has outperformed the rest of the world. Um, it's created quite a meaningful gap. We expect that gap to narrow. And, and that would be true both relative to other developed economies and to emerging economies? Yes, and certainly over the last couple of weeks, the leading indicators, particularly in EM and outside of the US, have been outperforming the leading indicators in the US. And how does the, the presidential election campaign play into this? I mean, I know there's a strong narrative that President Trump wants to complete a trade deal uh, to demonstrate that he can do things for the US economy. But do you, do you see the election campaign and all the noise around it being a significant influence over the next few months? Yeah, certainly we believe that as we move into the um, elections in November next year, that investors will demand a higher risk premium for U.S. assets. 
And that's one of the reasons why we believe that investors will start to look outside of the US where valuations are much lower. The volatility around the elections, um, whether we have a Warren administration coming through, for example, poses some risk to US corporate profits and um, corporate tax rates, etc. So that noise and volatility requires a much more attractive valuation level. And so for that reason, we think that investors are likely to gravitate towards um, Europe, where we've had a lot of political risk over the last couple of years, and valuations reflect that. So let's talk about one area of political risk, which is still very prominent in Europe, and that's the UK. It does look at the moment as if, and we're still four weeks from the election, uh, Boris Johnson and the Conservatives will have a big enough majority to be able to vote through a Brexit deal. But leaving aside Brexit, uh, what impact do you see a, if you like, strong Conservative majority having on the economy and markets in the UK next year? Um, at the moment, it feels as if um, the Conservative Party are certainly leaning towards fiscal spending. Um, that kind of fiscal spending can stimulate domestic growth. Um, one of the issues UK assets have had, particularly if we look at the UK equity market, despite the weakness in sterling, which is normally good for UK large caps, UK large caps have underperformed the rest of the world because earnings have been pretty weak. And if we can get some improvement in domestic UK growth, um, that can be positive for UK earnings. And as a consequence, it might lead to a stronger UK equity market. So if we look at the fiscal side, um, if we look at the manifesto, then that can be favourable for UK growth, which is which has been pretty weak. And also for sterling against the dollar or against the euro? Yes, yeah, so sterling has recovered um, from the August lows. Um, a lot of that has been due to the view that the probability of a hard Brexit has um, fallen. Um, if we do get a conservative majority, the view we have right now is that um, the proposal or the deal that was agreed between Boris and the Europeans will go through. Um, and to some extent, that will reduce the uncertainty, which should help sterling. However, I think we need to compare that with what the Bank of England is likely to do. We also need to compare that against um, the prospect of more fiscal stimulus and what that means for the deficit. And so while sterling can rebound, we do believe that there is a cap. Um, so something around 135 seems to be a, a and attract a good and we're fair at value. 129 and we're today. at 129. One of the, the features of the way that you construct portfolios is having assets which, which act as a hedge in the event that your primary view is, is, is not working out. That's become more difficult as bond yields have fallen and the traditional risk-free asset seems quite richly priced. Where, where are you finding hedges against risky assets now? Yes, um, I, I like that point about um, traditional hedging assets are very richly priced. Um, but even so, we do still like government bonds, particularly US government bonds, where there is still some form of carry. There is still a yield um, that exists. And we also believe that what the Fed communicated in October was very clear, their um, asymmetric profile towards um, US 
interest rates in that there's a high hurdle rate for raising rates, but there's a very low hurdle rate for cutting rates. And as a consequence for us, it means that while US bond yields can rise gradually from here based on the expectation of better data, there is a ceiling to US bond yields until the Fed changes their policy. So in that environment, US government bonds are still an attractive hedge. And particularly so at the long end of the yield curve? Yes, where the carry due to the shape of the yield curve is more attractive. So coming back to the point about liquidity, and that's obviously been the driving force behind market performance in 2019, and central banks seem to have done everything they can to sustain confidence in financial markets. What, what sort of measures would you expect central banks to be taking in 2020? Well, I know Keith, for example, thinks there are still going to be two uh, rate cuts from the Federal Reserve. But uh, in order to maintain momentum, central banks will have to do even more than they've done already. Yes, I mean, it's really the Fed that has the ability to continue to provide liquidity. So we expect more rate cuts. Um, the Fed is now willing to grow and expand their balance sheet. We expect that to continue, which is very supportive for global liquidity. So the Fed has the power and they're willing to continue to provide that liquidity. I think what we have at the moment is a Fed that is thinking about inflation, targeting inflation. Um, they want U.S. inflation, their um, ideal measure, which is PCE, to be above 2%. Um, I mean, on average, over the last 10 years, the average has been one7 So that's a very difficult order. And so as a consequence, we expect the Fed to continue to lean towards providing liquidity as they continue to aim for that very ambitious target of 2% inflation. But you're right, a lot of the wins from the liquidity has come through this year with markets approaching 23-24%, it means a lot of the reflation in asset prices has come through. Next year, the fundamentals need to come through. The fundamentals will matter. So for us, the key thing for next year is, is the data responding to the liquidity that has been pumped into the system? And that's something you'll be watching very carefully over the next few weeks and into the early part of next year. Yes, one, one thing we haven't talked about, one area we haven't talked about is China, where the growth number's been quite weak and there's been no dramatic reflation of the sort that happened after the financial crisis in 2008. Is, is, is that situation going to continue or will the, will the Chinese authorities be looking to do something that's more impactful? Well, I think the aim of the Chinese authorities this year has been to use stimulus to stabilise growth. Um, the numbers are still weak, but they, the rate of deterioration is softening. So on that basis, I think that they are, have achieved their target. If growth were to deteriorate more um, meaningfully, then yes, we do expect the authorities to provide more forceful stimulus. But for now, they're focused on stabilizing growth because the long-term strategy is to change the nature of growth and focus on quality growth. We're almost out of time for this week, but if I just summarise the message that Remy's been giving us, it's that the liquidity story remains intact for the time being, and therefore we expect markets to remain pretty benign from now, at least until the end of the year. But as we move further into 2020, the, the resilience of growth and the resilience of corporate earnings will become much more of an issue, uh, particularly as market valuations move ever higher. Remy, thank you very much indeed, and thank you all once again for listening.